I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week, a KCRW SOS Save Our Summer Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined. We're bringing you a couple of our favorite interviews on the value of giving. Oxford philosopher Will McCaskill shares his perspective on effective altruism. In my own case, I give away most of my income. So I, I just kind of limit my income to a cap that's a little more than the typical earning in the UK. I think that's about $32,000. I really think that has a very limited impact on my own well-being, but it does have an enormous impact on the world. And later, the rich history of philanthropy that comes from the African-American community. The history of African-American philanthropy goes back to the earliest of days during the period of slavery in the colonial era, where African-Americans started their own fraternal orders, they started their own free African societies, where they would engage in mutual aid practices, pool their resources together. The long-term value of giving and what we learn from black philanthropy that goes beyond just donating money. That's coming up on KCRW. This week, we've picked an important show from last year on the importance of giving and the rich tradition of black philanthropy. We start with altruism and our responsibility to future generations. That being said, when it comes to worrying about potential existential crises facing humanity, a few things come to mind. A deadly pandemic, perhaps, or nuclear war, or possibly a climate change-caused catastrophe. But what about the extinction of the human race? What can be done to preserve and protect humanity, to create a better, happier, and more peaceful world for our great-great-great-grandchildren? And what kind of moral responsibility do we have to future generations? And what can be done individually and collectively to ensure that humanity endures for millions of years? Championing the future of humanity is the goal of Oxford philosopher Will McCaskill. In his book, What We Owe the Future, McCaskill argues that having a positive impact on future lives is the single most important moral priority of our time. And it's not just those with power and influence who can have a profoundly positive effect. Equally important are our own individual choices of career and family. Will McCaskill is Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Oxford. His academic research focuses on the fundamentals of effective altruism, and he's co-founder of the Center for Effective Altruism, which has raised over $1 billion for charities. Will McCaskill, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me on. Uh, talk to me about this idea of owing uh, a future generation something. I think it's, it's really interesting verbiage that you're using, and maybe this will give us a little background into why, why you wanted to explore this. Sure. Well, we think about what we owe other people all the time, what you might owe your friends or family members, or what we owe people on the other side of the world who we might not ever meet, um, but who, whose lives could be improved dramatically, depending on what we do. And we don't often think about what we might owe future generations, because future generations, they're out of sight, they're generally out of mind. But I think it's a matter of really common sense ethics that future generations um, matter enormously, morally speaking. So if you imagine you're just hiking along a path, you drop some glass, the glass shatters, do you clean up after yourself? And the thought is like, yes, you should, because someone might walk along the on, on that track, they might cut themselves in the glass. But now if you ask yourself, uh, does it matter when that possible person could cut themselves, whether it's tomorrow or in a year's time or in a hundred years time I think it just really doesn't um, I think we very intuitively think that harm is harm where whenever it occurs and so that's what I mean when I think say um, yeah what do we owe future generations I basically mean we we owe them we owe them a good future and the avoidance of a bad future in just the same way as we owe 
um, a good life and the avoidance of suffering for people alive today. You're a student of philosophy, somebody who's taught it for years. And I wonder if you look you know, far back, maybe even to antiquity or, or more modern philosophers, do you see this idea of looking towards the future with a moral imperative, uh, this idea of long-termism? Where do we see this show up at all in philosophy? It's a great question. And the thing that's really remarkable is actually how little it shows up through in the kind of major schools of moral thought. So if you look at the ancient Greeks or um, you look at the kind of tradition of the Abrahamic religions or Confucianism, Buddhism, uh, I did at least a bit of investigation into this and it didn't seem to be a very major thread. In contrast, the philosophy of uh, many indigenous peoples, it really does seem to appear. So part of the Geonashigawa, the Orokwai, um oral constitution, it is, you know, has this impassioned plea to consider in your decision-making how you will impact not just the present generation, but the generations to come. Similarly, um, there are many veins of thought in indigenous African philosophy that, again, is concerned for um, the kind of longer-term future generations. Mm. And so perhaps it's something that kind of got lost a little bit uh, when technology started to technological progress started to move faster uh, social change started to move faster people became kind of progressively more focused on the here and now rather than thinking about the long-term impact of their actions when we look at previous uh, cultures or generations eras of history there have been many eras in time in which people feel they might be the last generation or the world is falling apart around them. That maybe even though we have this idea quite a bit now, there is a thread that goes back quite quite a ways back. Do you, would you agree with that? Um, yeah, I completely agree with that. Um, even the early Christians, they thought that kingdom was going to come, mm. you know, within their generation or another generation. Mm. And, you know, I think... Insofar as um, I and many of my colleagues worry greatly about risks that could befall humanity this century, whether that's from extreme climate change or um, a worst-case pandemic, um, or from extremely advanced AI that's more powerful than you know human capabilities, you know it should like there should be a little bit of a humbling influence that perhaps you know perhaps there's a human bias to overestimate. Um, the magnitude of catastrophic risks to think you're like at a particularly special point in time when everything's right. going to end. Right. And so I, th- I think the right attitude is one of kind of balance where we acknowledge that, you know, these are real risks. You know, these are worries that we have that are very different from theological-based worries about uh, the end times. You know, these are grounded in science and good arguments and careful reasoning right rather than just like the teachings of some holy book or um, prophet Uh, at the same time you know I don't think it's in any way guaranteed that everything's going to (laughs) end in fact I think like much more likely than not that we all make it to the next century and even that life will be better in the next century than it is in this century Mm. and so I think we need to hold those two ideas in mind at the same time like we can make things better and things like are often getting better, but we still need to mitigate the risks of things getting much worse. Mm. Maybe spend a little bit more time talking about what you're seeing 
in the present moment that, that makes us unique. I mean, climate change for me comes immediately to mind, but with that, there are so many other threads of, of famine or disease, or it goes really on and on and on. But how do you understand the uniqueness of the present moment when we think about this idea of long-termism? Uh, yeah, I think that the present moment is extremely unusual compared to both the past and the future. And the key thing that makes it different is just the rate of change, how much is changing every year, mm. where I think that's true for you know the, how much energy we're using and the increase in energy use. Um, I think it's true for yeah environmental change. I think it's true even plausibly for um, moral change too. But the clearest... Um, case is uh, when we look at kind of economic growth. So for most of human history, the first 300,000 years that humans were around, um, there was very, very little economic growth at all. With the agricultural era, that, led to, that changed to about 0.1% growth per year. But over the last couple of hundred years, now it's more like 3% global growth. And so technological advancement, economic growth, is just at a much faster pace than um, it has been throughout almost all of history. But there's this very strong argument that it must also be at much faster pace than for almost all of humanity's future if we don't go extinct. And that's just simply that the power of kind of compound growth is huge, where if we were to continue growing at the current rate of kind of about 2% per year for 10,000 years, which is very small on the scale of the potential life span of humanity, then for every atom within reachable distance, there would have to be uh, something like a billion trillion civilizations worth of output mm. for every atom. And it just seems like, look, that's just not possible. We will hit limits to growth, and we will hit them within centuries or thousands of years, not millions of years. And so that just means that economic growth and technological progress has to slow down and so we are going through this like unusually large number of changes, unusually like large number of technological developments than we have seen in the past and that we will see in the future. Mm. And each of these technologies, you know, they could be great. Um, efficient, you know, medicine makes the world much, much better. But they could also pose great risks where uh, nuclear weapons pose enormous risks, the ability to engineer new pathogens. Uh, Pose, pose potentially even bigger risks again. For me, what's really interesting in thinking about uh, preserving the, the lives of future generations is that it takes, I think, almost this leap of imaginative empathy. I mean, you have to, I think, get out of your own mind and, and body and time and place and, and actually think about what it is to be someone who was not born yet. And I, I wonder for some if that's a leap that's almost too hard to take. It, it, it just requires a little bit too much energy or, or thought. I, wh what do you think about that? I think it's a real challenge. I think that for wider society, it's just absolutely true that future generations get you know, very little say or sway over political decisions now, for example. Mm. And that's because they're out of sight, they're out of mind. We, they're not here to represent themselves. They're disenfranchised in that way. And I think, in, I mean, for me too, when I was first thinking about these ideas, I found it much harder to get motivated to benefit generations of people that I would never meet 
uh, never even be co-located in time with. Um, and that does mean that, well, there's two ways to go, I think, in terms of taking this seriously. One is just via arguments, so just appealing to the intellect. And then a second is appealing to the imagination. So um, fiction, I think, can do this very well. Yeah. Uh, I gave, you know, for my sins, I gave a little go at this. Um, so there's a little Easter egg in uh, What We Owe the Future. At the very last page, there's a QR code you can scan. Um, and it's uh, a little short story of a, um, a future that I think would be good, you know, portrayal of a good future. Um, but that was my attempt to... Uh, because it's very hard, if, if you're just making intellectual arguments, perhaps, you know, people are left not feeling as motivated. Mm. Whereas, you know, deep sketches of just how good things could be if we do manage to get our act together, well, that can be very motivating. Yeah, and I, just that idea of future generations being disenfranchised, it's just not even, that's not even a, a concept I had ever thought about, as if they deserve a seat at the table to, to make big decisions, right? I mean, absolutely. Where it's this remarkable fact. So, again, in, in What We Are the Future, they suggest that future generations outnumber us in the present by something like a thousand to one. And yet the decisions that we make impact future generations all the time. And so it's almost as if, like, you know, the people of Switzerland were making decisions to govern the entire world. Uh, that would seem absurd to us, but that's what's happening now. Now, of course, there's an important difference because future people, they can't represent themselves. You know, that's just logically impossible. Um, we don't have time travel. Um, but we can at least try to give them fair consideration. We can at least, as a culture and in terms of our political systems, try to think very seriously about what are the things we're doing that will impact the long term and how can we make things go better than the long term. Whereas at the moment, we, we pay almost no attention to those, to those impacts. What do you think goes into convincing people of this or making persuasive arguments? Or I know for you, it's writing books or, or talking. Or, but I, I, I guess I'm asking, how, how do you really push this argument into the mainstream and, and have it really settle in, in the consciousness of people listening? Yeah, so like I say, I think there are two modes to having these ideas become more prevalent and accepted. Um, one, which is, you know, it's how I naturally operate, I'm a philosopher, um, is by making arguments. And in particular, I think the core argument is very simple. Just future people count morally. There could be enormous numbers of them. We can, what we do today can make their lives go better or worse. It seems like a very simple, very compelling argument to me. Um, but over the course of writing the book, I became a lot more sympathetic uh, to the power of fiction and storytelling, where when I first read 1984, kind of as a teenager, um, I didn't think much of it, to be honest. Perhaps that's because I was forced to read it at school. Um, but then I read it again, and I was like, actually, this is prophetic and and or at least prophetic about a certain risk, a certain way in which, like, uh, totalizing ideologies could get locked in indefinitely. That's actually, like, that's really powerful. Or the first work of dystopian science fiction ever by Mary Shelley called The Last Man is about um, a pandemic that 
uh, ravages the entire world, literally kills off everyone. I mean, that was written in the 19th century. <laughs> and I think like we still haven't learned a lesson today. And so one thing I'm also doing on the side is I'm actually advising the creation of a kind of media studio uh, with you know, uh, someone I've worked closely with um, and also some Hollywood actors uh, in the, with the aim of trying to set up or trying to create kind of movies, TV shows, documentaries, YouTube, uh, and also kind of, yeah, yeah, fiction stories as well, to try to at least make some of the scenarios that could occur in our future just more vivid and more real. As a philosopher, how do you feel about questions of overpopulation and in particular the idea of limiting future lives? I mean, you know, not allowing there to be an exponential growth in the number of humans. Uh, yeah, thanks for asking that, because this is something where uh, I really differ, I think, from what is a very common thing of thought, which is worrying that the world's overpopulated. Because, um, I mean, so f- firstly, in reality, we're, we're not experiencing this exponential population growth anymore. Uh, the UN projects population to plateau by 2100 and then decline. The Institutes for Health Metrics and Evaluation, which I think is probably more accurate, actually, expects population to peak at about 2060 and then decline after that. So really what we're facing is a declining population uh, rather than an ever-expanding population. And I actually think that's quite worrying. Um, I'm actually kind of more worried by population decline and drop than I am about potential overpopulation. Um, And that's for a few reasons, but one of which is just... You know, I've talked about technological progress and I've talked about the risks from technological progress. And I think we need to be very careful about what risks do we accelerate and what do we push into the future. However, we do need technological progress to keep going in general. Because if we were just to plateau at any given level, I think that, like, that the level of technological advancement we're at is unsustainable. Where every year we just have some risk of an all-out nuclear war that could end civilization. If we just stay frozen as we are, it's only a matter of time before civilizational collapse is um, essentially guaranteed. Mm. And so we actually need technology to get us out of the bad situation. We've kind of already seen that with climate change, where you know the first means of um, having kind of really abundant energy came from fossil fuels, but then via technological development, we had nuclear power and solar power and wind power. You know, so we needed technological advancement to get us out of the bad state of relying on fossil fuels. And I think that will be true for other technologies too. What does this have to do with population? Well, the leading economic models um, suggest that a crucial factor into how much technological progress we make is literally just how many people we have working on the relevant problems. And it's getting harder and harder to make additional technological progress. So we've needed to have more and more people working on these problems. And if population starts to decline, on these standard economic models, we would see kind of a stagnation of a plateauing and then stagnation of technological progress too. And I think that could be quite worrying. Talk to me about just small, concrete ways that we can all live with this idea of effective altruism. And, and I, I'd be curious to get some personal examples from you. I mean, whether it's uh, the amount of money one should give away, uh, the type of activism one might take part in, to how one should live or eat or spend time. I, 
because many people listening may not have the, the microphone or the pen that you do. So I, I wonder what you would tell those of us that are just trying to you know, be good citizens of the future. Sure. And the single thing I think is like anyone can do um, and yet is enormously impactful is donate where in kind of contemporary kind of ethical discussion, there's an enormous focus on consumption kind of what do you buy or what do you not buy? Um, do you fly? Do you recycle? Do you buy fair trade? And by and large, I think that's a kind of a tactical error where over and over again, when I compare the impact that one can have by changes in consumption to the impact one can have via donations, you can just have far, far bigger impact via donations. And that's because you're able to identify of all the organizations out there in the world, which are the very most impactful? Which are the things that do the most to you know, turn my resources into good outcomes? In my own case, uh, I give away um, most of my income. So I, I just kind of limit my income to a cap that's uh, about the kind of, a little more than the typical earning in the UK, um, which is about 26,000 pounds. I think that's about $32,000. And I just kind of give everything above that. Uh, and I really think that has a very limited impact on my own well-being, but it does have an enormous impact on the world. Well, as we begin to, to wrap up, I, I'm aware that right now you are in New York City and, uh, you know, the, the Big Apple of the United States, and you, you spend most of your time, though, in Europe. And I wonder if you have any observations of, of American culture and our role in this conversation. Is this something you find that... Um, Americans tend to think about this idea of being a good steward of the future, or is there something in kind of the rugged individualist spirit of America that maybe makes us a little slow here on the uptake? I think it goes both ways. Uh, so you're right that there's this uh, individualist or consumerist strain in uh, United States culture that um, is not very well suited to, you know, worrying about our impacts in the long term. But there's also um, a kind of deep optimism and entrepreneurialness and kind of willingness to change things for the better. There's another significant strain in US thought. And that is, I think, what can be harnessed, where we can say, look, hey, we don't need to have it suffer through another pandemic. Um, we can create the technology that can prevent, that can protect against us. And you know, people in uh, United States will sometimes say, yes, we can, and actually go and do it. And uh, mm. that's kind of very heartening. And it's, um, I think it's no uh, coincidence that among proponents of effective altruism or long-termism or adherence to the idea, uh, I think most people, or certainly like a very large fraction, are, b are based in the United States. My guest has been Will McCaskill, Associate Professor in Philosophy at the University of Oxford and author of What We Owe the Future. Will, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a delight. Once again, you're listening to KCRW SOS, Save Our Summer Fundraiser, and that was Will McCaskill, Oxford University professor and author of What We Owe the Future. Coming up next, it's Tyrone McKinley Freeman, who shares the rich tradition of black philanthropy and the story of Madam C.J. Walker's gospel of giving. 
We'll be back with Tyrone Friedman after this short break. And just a quick minute for us to say a huge thank you to all of you who have supported and continue to support us at KCRW on our life examine journey. It's incredible, but we're coming up on three years, and this show continues to find new listeners every week. So if you're someone who tunes into KCRW and Life Examined every week, if you support this programming and the type of conversations and questions we ask, then we'd love your support. Please just take one minute and go to kcrw.com give to support all the things we try to do and bring into your life on Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Stay close. We'll be back with part two of Life Examine after this short break. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Welcome back to Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to KCRW's Life Examined during our SOS, Save Our Summer fundraiser on KCRW. Thanks for tuning in, and you may have heard about cuts to programming and staff at other media outlets. KCRW members are what set us apart. Help us weather this financial storm by joining us as a monthly member. Donate now at kcrw.com give. We just heard Will McCaskill explain the effective value of cash donations and how these donated monies can be allocated to do the most good. In McCaskill's case, he gives away a good portion of his own income and encourages others to do the same. We want to continue this theme of giving and how our ideas and our definition of philanthropy might be changing. So what does it mean to be a philanthropist? Historically, the rich and successful have championed many causes, but not just with white elites. Traditions of giving, supporting, and fighting against injustice have deep roots within the African-American community, and specifically amongst women. In his latest book called Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow, author Tyrone McKinley Freeman focuses on the life of Madam C.J. Walker. Born during Reconstruction in 1867, she became the nation's first self-made black millionaire. Tyrone McKinley Freeman is Associate Professor of Philanthropic Studies at Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy, and he joins me now. Tyrone Freeman, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me. Um, can you talk a little bit about the definition of philanthropy, and most importantly, how we can understand how it's functioned historically in communities of color? Sure, yes. I think generally when we think about philanthropy in the public, we tend to think about what the very wealthy do with their money in terms of making multi-million dollar, even billion dollar gifts to, to organizations. Um, or the everyday person might think about what they're allowed to deduct from their taxes, right? Um, when, they're, when they're, you know, every April in terms of the donations that they make. But when I think about philanthropy and the, and the research that I do on the history of philanthropy and communities of color, it's looking at a much broader definition that goes beyond the boundaries of money and back to really that notion of, of the Greek root of the word, which is love for humanity, love for humankind. There are many different ways to express that love. Money is one, but we can give of our time. We can give of our talents. We can give of our our opinions, our, our voices to raise important issues and engage in advocacy to, to bring attention to needs in a community and try to direct resources to them. We can also help people outside of organizations uh, in, through our one-to-one relationships 
relationships, neighbor to neighbor, family member to family member, helping people get through difficult moments, um, helping people get through school or, or other transitional points in life. So in thinking about philanthropy from a, a broadened standpoint, those are the kinds of things that I include. And in, in my specific research on the history of African-American philanthropy, I define it as, as a, a, a medley of beneficent acts and gifts mm. that are directed towards helping an individual address a need or addressing larger social purposes. And that come from, again, through this African-American experience, a, a collective consciousness and a shared experience of humanity. So this, mm. this idea of, of, of working together to address injustices, working together to meet each other's needs in the face of larger societal and, and political pressures from slavery to Jim Crow to other issues, right, that affect the quality of life, the life chances, and, and the needs that people have. And so the work that I do is very much about telling this history and looking at the ways in which African Americans have directed their own philanthropic resources to meet their needs and to press for social changes against these larger injustices. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm looking forward to hearing more specifically about that in just one moment. But I, I'm also just struck by how narrow our concept of philanthropy has become. As you said, I think now we really just think about it as, you know, you either have money to donate or you don't. And I, I kind of wonder if you have any sense of how our sense has become so small when the word actually is such a big definition. Yeah, I think, it, again, it gets back to the, the ways in which we hold this conversation. In, in our media, we tend to use the word philanthropist to apply to the ultra-wealthy. Mm -hmm. And again, given the history in our country, that tends to be a wealthy white individuals. And so right. we look to a specific group uh, to, to understand this behavior. Um, but again, it, it's actually part of our common collective human heritage. It doesn't belong to one group or another, but it's something that we can find across cultures, across countries countries uh, that the ways in which people help each other uh, are, 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 are many. Um, and again, our, our tax code may only recognize a few for the purposes of reducing tax liability, but we're talking about practices that existed before these tax codes existed. Mm -hmm. So again, it's a larger human practice that's very important and that any and all of us can plug into and be a part of. Yeah, absolutely. So let's spend some time really diving in to the African-American story in the United States. Um, talk about this idea. You mentioned kind of a, there was a, a, a collective, a shared story, a sense of, of, of being united around, you know, certain ideas or feelings or, or historical conditions. How does that factor it into the story of philanthropy in that larger community? Yeah. So if you look at the black experience in America uh, and the experiences with slavery and then later with Jim Crow segregation, um, there's a sense that as this history has evolved, that um, African-Americans have not been able to always look to government or even or the private sector or the nonprofit sector for help, that these sectors have actually been complicit in these injustices. And so um, when you're having that situation, when, the, when the, the forces of society are working against you, you turn inward and you you begin building your own institutions. You begin caring for each other, uh, one, trying to survive, and two, trying to push back uh, to reverse slavery, to, to overcome Jim Crow and bring down segregation. And so the history of African-American philanthropy goes back to the beginning of this country. Um, it's not something that's more recent uh, in, in, the, in the 21st century, but it goes back to the earliest of days during the period of slavery in the colonial era, where African-Americans started their own fraternal orders. They started their own uh, 
um, uh, um, African societies, free African societies, where they would engage in mutual aid practices, pool their resources together to meet needs, um, and also, again, kind of pushing back against these, these larger systems. And it's a, it's a history that continued to grow across time. And so, um, uh, again, it's something that has involved money, it has involved time, it has involved advocacy. And one way of thinking about whether it's abolition or the anti-lynching movement of over 100 years ago to the civil rights movement of the mid-20th century to today's calls for, for racial justice, social justice, there's a philanthropic thread that runs across these as, as African Americans express their own moral imagination, their desire for freedom, and used everything they had available to them to pursue that. So sharing what little you might have, what little money you might have, what food you might have, uh, you know, valuing education and, and, and providing and building schools through black churches or, or, or black fraternal orders to meet the needs amidst these larger uh, climate uh, of, of exclusion and, and, and segregation. And so really this, this history is very deep and, and I write about that a lot in my book. Yeah. You profile in particular one um, extraordinary individual. This is Madame Walker. Can, can you tell, yeah. tell us about that person and why this has been a, a big point of your research? Yeah, so Madam C.J. Walker uh, was an early 20th century African-American woman entrepreneur and philanthropist. Um, she made her wealth in uh, the beauty care industry, developing products so that black women could style their hair and care for themselves. Uh, and, and so th- I wanted to tell the story of her philanthropy because it turns out that it was something that was very important to her life. Um, she's, she tends to be more known for being this entrepreneur and, and being a pioneer in beauty culture, but she also was very philanthropic. And so my book, Madam C.J. Walker's Gospel of Giving, Black Women's Philanthropy During Jim Crow, traces the story of her philanthropy. And it turns out that she is not following this traditional model of philanthropy that we tend to think about and associate with people like Andrew Carnegie, where you spend your life accumulating wealth and then later in old age begin uh, giving your money away or your other resources away to help others. That no, philanthropy is actually something that she comes into in her early 20s as a poor, struggling young mother who actually was widowed. Um, uh, Her husband had died and also early in her life, her parents had died, so she was orphaned. But she found herself in a very difficult situation in St. Louis where she was in need. She joined a local church there, St. Paul's AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and began uh, being supported and mentored by the women of this church um, who were very active in their community, doing charitable works, running organizations, pursuing public policy to bring down Jim Crow. And pretty soon she begins working alongside them, even though she's this poor, struggling, orphan, widowed young mother mm. in just as much need as the neighbor she's helping. So really, uh, philanthropy becomes something that she engages at a young age, and then it unfolds and grows across her lifetime. So it was the sense that she was giving along the way and doing what she could with what she had because the need was so great, uh, the need for liberation was important. And so later in life, when she she does become wealthy, she simply has more resources uh, with which to do things that she was already doing philanthropically. So it's a very different model, but it speaks to how philanthropy can be accessible uh, when we look at different traditions of it instead of always focusing on, again, what what the ultra-wealthy white individuals are doing with their resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you can give me some examples as to how she gave. If she didn't have money, what, what, what would have been some activities or the time she would have given? 
Yeah, so she was she was born in 1867, so right after the Civil War, um, and she died in 1919, so the kind of the end of World War One. So it gives you a sense of her time frame. But early on, when she's just beginning, she's very much active in her church. So she is is volunteering and serving on committees and in the Might Missionary Society at her church, which was a women's group that was doing charitable works in the neighborhood. So she reported knocking on doors, raising money, delivering food items and care to sick members of the church and of the neighborhood. So really extending herself in that way. Over time, it grows. Um, and as she acquires resources through her business, she begins making monetary donations to organizations like the NAACP. She begins supporting black colleges like Tuskegee Institute in Alabama that was founded by Booker T. Washington and still exists to this day. Um, she also was very active in a fraternal order, which had a practice of pooling resources and paying money into a pot and then using that pot to provide social insurance or burial insurance uh, for its members and to meet the needs of people in the community. So there's many different ways that she was using her time and her money, but she also was on the front lines of the leading social movements of the day. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about the anti-lynching movement, uh, where, where African Americans were regularly being terrorized by vigilantes and being killed, uh, she was part of that movement that was spearheaded by the NAACP and others, um, where they were demanding that the government would pass laws to protect black lives. She was also pressing for women's voting rights. Um, you know, so uh, there's many ways that she used her voice as a gift. Uh, she used her money as a gift. She used her time. And she even used her business, this beauty culture empire, as a basis for engaging and providing economic opportunity to black women in a Jim Crow economy that didn't want them to succeed or didn't want them to have uh, gainfully employed lives. Uh, but she created economic pathways for people and opened up opportunities. So there's many different ways that she was giving and extending herself. Mm. And she had a really wonderful uh, kind of a gospel of giving. It was threefold. How did that go exactly? Yeah, so I, I wanted to kind of get at her core philosophy of giving. And, and although she never directly um, articulated in this fashion, my, my attempt to, to, to give some structure to it based on the way she lived her life and the few things she said about it was that one, uh, as a gospel of giving, that one, give as you can to be helpful to others. So that's, again, it doesn't matter your station in life. Do what you can right now where you are to help someone because there's always someone else um, in a worse off situation or who, who could benefit from what you do have. The second is, is to spare no useful means that might be helpful to others. So again, money is, is obviously a readily accessible gift, right? But there's other ways. And so she was somebody who was benefited by encouragement from women in the church, by daycare services provided through that church, um, by education even, right? So, so thinking about the different ways that you can help people gives you a way of expanding the types of gifts you can bring uh, uh, to help others. And then the last is, as you acquire more, give more. Uh, again, this I, you know, kind of bucking this idea of waiting until you've accumulated a certain amount and then becoming engaged. Madam Walker's life demonstrates this idea of as you acquire more wealth, give more wealth. Mm -hmm. As you acquire more time, give more time. As you acquire more influence, open more doors and, and, and for others and, and help them again get to where they're trying to go. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the history of the black church and all of this? And in particular, um, how the church would have functioned as an institution of giving, of philanthropy, and that there was a very, it appears to me, very strong link between the two. 
Absolutely. Um, the black church has historically been um, really a foundational institution in black philanthropy. So one, it's, you know, founded, funded, and, and completely controlled by African-Americans. And you think about its, its history from the period of slavery to the present, being an institution controlled by African-Americans, meaning that they could set its own, their own agenda. That's why it was an important base for not only meeting spiritual and religious needs, it's very common to see black churches engage in building schools, providing daycare services, building housing, addressing other issues, because it also is this economic base. Um, that's why it's no accident that many of the great leaders in, in America have been black preachers coming out of this independent institution where they had the flexibility to speak truth to power and and, and not face the same kind of consequences if, if their livelihoods came from elsewhere. And so it's important to understand these institutions as multi-purpose. They're meeting these spiritual and religious needs, but they may also be providing education, social services, and other things because, again, the need is so great and they see it as part of their interpretation of the Christian gospel and the ways in which they're called to serve their community and to fight these injustices. And so it's a very important role that it has historically played and continues to play. And it showed up also in Madam Walker's life. As I mentioned before, it was the African Methodist Episcopal Church that she credited with teaching her these things about her responsibility to others. And that church um, has a tremendous history of you know being on the front lines for freedom, uh, building schools, uh, doing things internationally in other countries, um, also really you know being a part of the various movements over time, the civil rights movement, etc., uh, really trying to um, uh, deal with injustices in the world. Well, finally, you know, we, we heard from a philosopher earlier on the program about this idea of long-termism, which is that we need to be thinking about the bodies that are not born yet. What do future generations look like? What are their lives like? What are the, uh, what are the circumstances that they'll experience in this world? And maybe you could just talk a little bit about how black philanthropy perhaps had that in mind. There was a sense of pushing for a better future, uh, even if you didn't know when those children would be born, but there was a belief that things needed to be better 20, 100 years from now. Absolutely. Um, this is a big theme throughout um, black philanthropy. Uh, when we look at, you know, again, look at the story of Madam C.J. Walker. She was fighting against Jim Crow segregation with everything she had. She definitely wanted to dismantle it. And so she was part of the networks, the NAACP and supporting black colleges and and, and advocating and, and going to D.C. and trying to get the attention of President Woodrow Wilson at the time. And so she definitely wanted to bring it down, um, but she, she wasn't able to. She died in 1919. Um, and, and uh, you know, did not, was not able to bring it down. But because of her gifts to organizations like the NAACP, um, those organizations were able to continue the fight. Mm -hmm. And so that three decades later, we do get some of those historic legislative wins that begin to dismantle. But that's because of what her generation did to build those organizations, the NAACP, the Urban League, the schools, the fraternal orders, they were all founded after Reconstruction, the turn of the 20th century. Madam Walker's generation is the generation that stood those organizations up and funded them and supported them and then kind of catapulted them forward for future generations to continue that struggle and, and, and get across those those the, the cross the, the finish line, if you will, uh, to get those kinds of legislative wins. And so now we see that continuation today with the extension of Black Lives Matter and Me Too and, and, and movements regarding policing and housing and education and healthcare. The sense that it continues and we've got to continue fighting um, because 
uh, laws can be reversed and, 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 and gains can be reversed too. So there's a sense of all hands on deck and each generation has to make its contribution, receive the baton, move it forward and pass it off to the next. I've been speaking with Tyrone McKinley Freeman with Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Uh, Tyrone, thank you so much for sharing your research with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. All right, that's it for this week. Our producer is Andrea Brody. So what do we owe future generations to come? How do you feel about long-termism? How do you feel about donating part of your salary to charitable causes? Chime in on our Facebook page. You can find a link to the group at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. But before we leave you today, thanks for tuning in during KCRW's SOS, Save Our Summer Fundraiser. We're so grateful that you're here with us. And if you're grateful for the work we do at Life Examined, and if this show has provided you with some meaning or some support, please show it. Go to kcrw.com slash give. Any donation matters, and we would love it if you become a monthly member, which helps us plan for the future and for future programming needs here at KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. This is Life Examined on your public radio station. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you again soon. Take care.